You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. The other day, a mail order catalog arrived in the mail, and it took me back to my university days, a memory. Just coming into freshman year, I was crouched on a rock outcropping a thousand feet above a valley floor. It was the middle of the night. I was shivering and uh, somewhat uh, distressed. And as I sat there uh, cramped and hungry and cold on this ledge and waited for the dawn, uh, I was asking myself the question, how exactly did I get here? And it was a story really of friendship. It was a story that actually began with this... um, Mail order catalog. It's called Patagonia. It was started by a rock climber named Yvonne Chenard. And when I was in high school, I met somebody who enjoyed this catalog. And the two of us would sit in each other's rooms and we'd leave through its pages and look at spectacular photographs of mountains and ledges and look at the gear. And over time, we began to pool our money together and purchase some of this gear. And we had a shared collection of rock climbing gear which we would use climbing trees or or walls or soon we'd find ourselves escaping to rock quarries and uh, soon mountains and uh, we found ourselves this night in Yosemite Valley a thousand feet above the Iwani Hotel on a climb called Royal Arches and uh, it was a road trip and a dream that we might climb one of America's what's called 50 classic climbs and uh, and this was the easiest one uh, or one of the easiest ones so there we were but we hadn't planned well enough, or we were too conservative. Uh, supposed to take 10 hours. I think it took us longer than that. Uh, so that we, we were within 400 feet of the summit when it was just dark, too dark to move. And uh, we were out of food. We were out of water. We hadn't planned on spending the night. And we just this ledge was about the size of a bathtub, like uh, smaller than our communion table. And there the two of us were, um, listening to people dining at the Iwani down below. And I sat there and I thought, This friendship business is a risky business. And there's really some truth to that, isn't there? The book of Proverbs understands that. The the, the book of Proverbs tells us, speaks of the wounds of a friend. And by the way, that's when the relationship's going well. There's a kind of realism in the book of Proverbs that also encompasses the reality that sometimes relationships don't go well. And there's a caution that we ought to have about them. Proverbs 4.23 says, for example, above all else, guard, guard your heart. Protect it. For, for it is the wellspring of life. And yet it's not all dour and cautious. There's a great gift to be given. God has given us a great gift in friendship. And Proverbs recognizes that. In Proverbs 27 verse 9, we read, The sweetness of a friend is better than one's own counsel. So how do we navigate the risk-reward equation of friendship? There's a lot to be gained. There's a lot to be lost. Well, it's really a stewardship question. It's a question, by the way, whether they think of it or not, that 6,000 freshmen are entertaining uh, this year at the University of Washington as they land in this new context. It's a new landscape, and many of them will not know anybody. And they'll be, it's a, a science of social engineering, right? Putting roommates together and a, and a freshman class together and hoping that they'll get along. And we all know, or those of us who have been to college, that it doesn't always work that way. Particularly not with the freshman roommate. And so how do you navigate uh, these challenges? Well, God gave ancient Israel timeless wisdom for true friendship. 
And I would invite you to open up the Bible to uh, one of those passages uh, in Proverbs that addresses the theme of friendship, and that's on page 531 of the Pew Bible. If you brought your own, it's Proverbs chapter 27, verses 5 through 10. That's our text for this morning, and if you're able, I would invite you to stand with me, and let's read God's Word aloud together. Proverbs chapter 27, verses 5 through 10. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the Word of the Lord. If you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading his holy word. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Well meant are the wounds a friend inflicts, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. The sated appetite spurns honey, but to a ravenous appetite, even the bitter is sweet. Like a bird that strays from its nest, is one who strays from home. Perfume and incense make the heart glad, but the soul is torn by trouble. Do not forsake your friend or the friend of your parent. Do not go to the house of your kindred in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor who is nearby than kindred who are far away. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. We, we read that way too quickly. Uh, Proverbs are like riddles, and you really have to let them sit in your head for a while and puzzle over them. We'll do that with these uh, six Proverbs in a moment, but I just want to uh, uh, remind us that we're asking this question, how do we navigate the risk-reward equation of friendships in the context of stewardship? Just to review what we discussed last week, a steward is someone who manages the resources of another. But when I find myself assuming that life is mine to do what I will, then what we call that is not a steward, but a consumer. Raises a question for us when we think about friendship. When we speak of my friend, we use that phrase, my friend, what do we mean by the possessive pronoun? My there's a consumer perspective that we can bring to friendship, and, and it's just kind of the way we... It's our default mode. The consumer perspective asks the wrong set of questions. We ask, is she my friend? As though she could be my own possession. Or uh, does this relationship meet my needs? As though my own satisfaction were the goal. How could I get him to do these things? Confusing the difference between... Manipulation and friendship. This is a consumer perspective. But when we flip that around and we begin to ask about our friends through the perspective of stewardship, then we raise different questions. We begin to ask ourselves, well, what if this friend is so much mine as God's? And what is God's purpose for this relationship? How is it that this friendship can thrust us further and deeper into what God is doing in the world? And we might ask ourselves the old uh, campground question, you know, when you go camping, minimum impact camping says, do I leave this place better than the way I found it? Do I leave you better than the way I found you if we've had a friendship together? At the end of the day, will you be a better person because our lives crossed? See, that's the stewardship uh, question, friendship. Uh, uh, God, remember, a steward is someone who takes their God, takes God-given resources and uses them for God-given purposes. 
So I want to suggest this morning, uh, before we even look at these Proverbs, that a true friend is somebody who takes second place. A true friend takes second place. Not just second place behind the friend, but even more importantly, second place behind God. God always be first place in this relationship. And it is these six Proverbs that help us to see how that might happen. Six Proverbs, I want to share with you three elements of good friendship, and all three of those elements were present on that rock ledge that night as my friend and I uh, shivered in the cold. Uh, They are a common language, a shared goal, and a joint struggle. First, uh, a common language. You know that rock climbers talk funny. If you've ever seen them or uh, gone rock climbing, you know there's a whole language. They say, you know, on belay, belay on, climb in, climb on, slack, up rope. There's a whole way. It's technical language. It's very important uh, for obvious reasons, given the dangers of climbing, uh, that they communicate well. And the same is true of friends. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. Better is open rebuke, or argument, your translation may say, uh, than hidden love. Well-meant are the wounds a friend inflicts, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. These two verses are paired intentionally. They use what theologians call a catchphrase to link them together. If we were reading in Hebrew, we'd see it because the linguistic link, the catchphrase, between verses 5 and 6 is the word love. You see it in verse 5. The word for friend in verse 6 is really one who loves. In, in Hebrew, well, men are the wounds of one who loves, inflicts. So they're linked linguistically by the word love. They're linked uh, thematically by the theme of communication. Do you notice that? They're both about how we communicate uh, with our friends. Verse 5 tells us that a love that's never expressed, at the end of the day, really doesn't matter. Verse 6 tells us that loving conversations aren't always comfortable. Conversations. This is a stewardship of words, how, how we communicate, the, the language that two friends use. And I want to suggest to you that here and also in the New Testament, we're taught to speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4.15 says that. Speak the truth in love. I don't know if you saw this New York Times article uh, that came out, I think it was in December. This whole spread and analysis of the avalanche at Stevens Pass. February, remember this, a year ago, uh, there were three fatalities, a group of skiers, large group, I forget the number, it was like 15, where's Silas, a bunch of them, they, they, they all, um, they stood, they met at this, the crest of Stevens Pass and they were all going off in, into the back country together, but a huge snowfall, tons of snow, and they got up there and um, they strapped on their skis and they got ready to head down and you know what, three of them died in a huge avalanche. The interesting thing about that is that these were people, all of them, who should have known better. Uh, Every single one of them was a a ski professional. They were in the uh, um, resort industry. They were journalists in ski magazines or making videos or championship skiers. And they were just out there to have a good time, to enjoy friendship together. But what happened was, as each one of them stood there, those who survived testified almost to a person that they had this nagging concern in their head that maybe this wouldn't be so safe on this particular day, given the conditions, and they understood the conditions. But they all say, I didn't want to say anything. 
And, and Silas, who's our backcountry ski instructor, tells me, you know, that now we're looking at this as a case study where the risk is not just the physical conditions, but it's the social conditions. It's what happens when a group of people get together and they say, oh, I don't want to be the chicken. I don't want to kill the fun. The Bible says, speak the truth in love. Proverbs 18.21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Think about that when you think about the risk-reward. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. See, the reason why so many of us don't really have true communication in our relationship is because it's risky. <laughs> For me, I think the two, three most dangerous words in the English language might be, I love you. They're so hard to say. And yes, I'm talking about friends as well as lovers. I love you. When's the last time you were able to say that to someone? How's your bromance going, guys? Uh, those are hard words. And the, the next three hardest words for me in the English language, when I, the hard words to hear are, can we talk? <laughs> oh, man. See, I don't want to say I love you because I'm afraid you might reject me. And then I'm destroyed. I don't want to hear you say, can we talk? Because I think you're loading the ammo to destroy me already. Right? It's dangerous. And I want to say, notice the motivation. This is so important. If you want to speak the truth in love, notice here, verse 6, well meant are the wounds a friend inflicts. If you can't bring good meaning, good intention to your communication, then it's better to be quiet. Don't communicate anything at all. Speaking the truth in love has been so abused that people use it really for judgment or for revenge or for manipulation. If, if you can't bring the spirit of Jesus Christ where you really, you really know that you're saying something for love and you really know that somebody is ready at that point in time, it's a timely word, as well as well meant, don't say anything at all. Climbers, oh, by the way, uh, Carl Barr, I love this. He says, the truth that is not spoken in love ceases to be the truth. Think about that. Because of who Jesus is. It's not true if it's not spoken in love. We can affirm that as Christians. Climbers and friends have a common language. The question is, how do we communicate? What does it mean to put someone, uh, put ourselves in second place in a relationship, second place to God with our words as we steward those? The second uh, uh, element of good friendship is a shared goal. First, we saw a common language. In these next two verses, a shared goal. There's one thing about two climbers who are on a, a cold ledge in the middle of the night. They both want the same thing. They both want to get to the top. That's what it's all about. There's no ambiguity about that. And there should be no ambiguity about the goal in a relationship. Because whether a relationship has an explicit goal or not, every friendship has a goal. You're coming together around something, for better or for worse. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. The sated appetite spurns honey, but to a ravenous appetite, even the bitter is sweet. Verse 8, like a bird that strays from its nest is one who strays... From home. Again, we'll find that the, the a compiler, the men of Hezekiah, as we're told earlier, here have linked these two proverbs uh, together linguistically. Both of them uh, repeat a word that starts with N in Hebrew, by the way. You can see the repeated word in English, though. In verse 7, it's appetite. In verse 8, it's strays. They're linguistically linked, but they're thematically linked as well, in that each of these talks about what happens in a relationship when the goal is missed. You see that they're kind of negative. Verse 7 shows what happens if, uh, when I, if I'm too full for a friend. 
uh, you know, I might miss honey, which is supremely valuable. Um, or so starved that I might gorge myself with destructive substitutes. Bitterness. Even bitterness can be sweet when you're that hungry. Verse 8 uh, shows us the dislocation uh, that we feel when we run away from friendship. The stresses, uh, the hardships of friendship, and finally, I just got to get out of this nest. So what's the goal? If there's a shared goal in friendship here in these texts, what is the goal? I want to suggest to you it's growth. After all, what is food for but nourishment to grow? And what is a nest for? But it's a safe environment in which the young mature. And so this is the context and the purpose, the goal of true friendship. So we're talking here in these Proverbs about the stewardship of growth. And the New Testament captures the principle that's here as well, I think, when it says build each other up. Remember, we saw the common language uh, encourage us to speak the truth in love, but here a shared goal teaches us to build each other up. That's where we're going. The top for us is maturity in Jesus Christ. Michael Mattias is now the uh, head of the thoracic surgery at uh, Masonic Cancer Center. He's a surgeon. Uh, and uh, he's very well respected, but it hasn't always been that way, and his life hasn't always been particularly uh, respectable. When he was college age, uh, he was uh, in and out of jail, arrested 24 times in police record. He was an, an addict. He was a high school dropout. And even his own girlfriend, on and off, described him as, quote, a lost soul, Michael Mattias. But it didn't stay that way. There was a, an inflection point in his life because one day he found himself delivering designer furniture to a man's house whose name was Stacy Robach. And Stacy Robach took the time to get to know this delivery man, asked him a few questions and rather liked him and found him to be quite bright. And uh, he asked him, would you come again and help me assemble my child's uh, play set? And soon a relationship was formed and they found themselves watching Saturday football games together and, and uh Stacy invited Michael over for dinner regularly. It was that relationship that changed his life. It was Stacy who one day asked him, would you ever consider being a doctor? And Michael laughed. But it was that relation, that friendship, that allowed him to believe more about himself and his future than he ever could believe. And look at how that friendship affected, changed, I think, both of those men. Proverbs 27, 17 says, Iron sharpens iron, and one person sharpens the wits of another. Psychologist Carlin Flora said recently in Time magazine, if you truly want to change some aspect of your life, develop friendships with people who aspire to the same goals as you. Friendships are about change and transformation. Build each other up. Now I ask myself, why the self-imposed isolation? I know I want my life to change. I know I need growth. What is it that keeps me from this goal in my life? Is it that my calendar is too full that I wouldn't be able to open myself up to a friend? Is it that I'm too lazy and I'm not willing to do uh, the work that friendship requires? Is it a matter of my uh, attention? I'm not paying attention to uh, the friends that are there or the people that are available in my life that God has provided for me to have a friendship with. 
Am I displacing what would be healthy friendships by gorging myself on substitutes for intimacy that really aren't healthy, that really won't allow my, me to grow? Do I, have I exaggerated the importance of my own autonomy and freedom uh, so that I have lost a sense of what a friend could do for me, the value of friendship? Or are friends just too draining? I'm too exhausted or too stressful and I've run away too many times. Why? Climbers and friends ask questions like, how are we, what's our goal? For us as Christians, how uh, are we growing in Christ together in this relationship? We take second place to God and to another person with our goals. Finally, there's a joint struggle. Climbers, you know, have a rope. It is that rope that holds them secure and safe. It is that rope, that bond between them, that allows one person who is fixed to the rock at all times uh, to allow the other person to extend themselves across the, the dangers on the face of the rock and towards the goal. Ironically, it's the bond between them that grants them the freedom to achieve the goal. It's the rope. It's a joint struggle. They share it together. Verses 9 through 10. Let's look at this. One last time. Perfume and incense make the heart glad, but the soul is torn by trouble. Actually, I want you to see the little footnote there. Uh, and if you're reading the NIV, you're gonna, uh, you've got an, a better translation here. But the footnote in our Bible here will take us down to an alternative translation, which I think is better. And it, so the second half of that uh, verse should read, The sweetness of a friend is better than one's own counsel. Perfume and incense make the heart glad, but the sweetness of a friend is better than one's own counsel. And then verse 10. Do not forsake your friend or the friend of your parent. Do not go to the house of your kindred in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor who is nearby than kindred who are far away. Uh, linguistically, again, these two are paired. There's a catchphrase. Uh, they're paired by the word friend. If you look at the footnote D, you see the word friend in, in verse 9. and verse 10, there, do not forsake your friend. Thematically, these two uh, are linked by this idea of presence, being present or nearby to one another. Verse 9 teaches us, gives us a picture of the joy of counsel that comes from the life of a friend. The word own down there in that little footnote is the word nefesh. It's soul or life in Hebrew. It's better than one's own uh, counsel or better than the counsel of of a soul or the counsel of a, a life. When you've got someone who's that close to you, who shares not just their advice, but their life, their soul with you, that is sweet. It brings joy. Verse 10 tells, it describes the value of a friend who's present in crisis, where we're most vulnerable and alone. It's even better than a family member when you've got a friend like that. So we see here the stewardship of presence. Galatians 6.2 says, Bear one another's burdens. That's that joint struggle. Gary Ingring tells a story of uh, two friends in World War I. Uh, they enlisted together. They went overseas together. They fought side by side. And yet one day, under withering fire, one of these two friends uh, fell, mortally wounded, was pinned down in the mud and the barbed wire. And his buddy was in a trench, and he, he reflexively started to go out to get him. And the sergeant pulled him back and said, you'll never live. You've got to stay here. 
And when the sergeant turned his back, that friend sprung out of the trench. He crawled out to his buddy and he brought him back. By the time he made it back to the trench with the sergeant several minutes later, he himself was mortally wounded and his friend was dead. And the sergeant said, what a waste. He never should have gone. And the man who had gone said, oh no, I would have done anything to have heard his last words. So when I got to him, he said, Jim, I knew you'd come. I knew you'd come. Proverbs tell us a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. This week I was uh, having coffee with someone, and he was telling me about his small group. It's a group of guys. And they get together fairly often, and he says, the interesting thing about this group of guys is our issues are all the same. They're like guy stuff. And we're, we're always going through the same stuff. You know, it's work, or it's women, or it's... Um, uh, I don't even want to share with you what guy stuff is, but it's just, just, if you're a guy, you know what it is. If you're married to one, I suppose you probably have an idea too, but it's all the same stuff, but the interesting thing is it's never happening at the same time. One of us has already gone through that, and another one is about to go through that. And that's kind of the way it works when you're climbing as well. One person, out of the security of where they are at that particular moment, are able to extend security to somebody who's in a very vulnerable place. And you and I, I hope, are in small groups because we desperately need that. We need to be in relationship with people who, when the crisis comes, as it says in verse 20, who will move into that place of vulnerability, who will walk towards us, not away from us. Someone said a true friend is one who walks in when the whole world walks out. Who uniquely cares for you? Who uniquely encourages you and speaks truth to you. It's a joint struggle. So here we are on the ledge, and the question isn't really not how did I get here, but where am I going? And we see that as we navigate the risks and the rewards of friendship, we ought to be attentive to our stewardship of the common language, our stewardship of a shared goal, and our stewardship of a joint uh, struggle. Someone said, uh, I went out to find a friend but could not find one there. I went out to be a friend, and friends were everywhere. See, that's the paradigm shift. If I'm looking just for my needs, I'm going to look and look and look, and I'm going to find there are no friends available for me. But when I look to serve other people's needs, to see other people as belonging to God, it changes. One last thing. One of the things that climbers know is that every climb is rated by a degree of difficulty. And I want to say to you that this call to be a friend has a degree of difficulty that exceeds my capacity and yours. We can't do it. But the good news is that Jesus Christ, on the day that he was betrayed, when Judas the betrayer came to betray him with a kiss, gathered his friends around a table in an upper room, and he said to you, I don't call you my servants anymore. I call you now my friends. And I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. And my Holy Spirit will give you my heart to feel what I feel, my eyes to see what I see, my hands to serve the way I serve, my feet to walk into people's lives the way I walk into people's lives, my love so that I will love through you. There is an open love in your life. Jesus says, I have the wounds to prove it. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for the people that you've given us. Some of them, we haven't even recognized them yet, but 
We pray that you would prompt each and every one of us to think about the friends in our lives this day and what it means that you have given them to us and um, not only for our benefit, but for theirs as well. Would you lead us? Would you help to form our small groups in the weeks ahead in such a way that every single person uh, finds this kind of relationship or begins it? We know that you are the one who takes the solitary, as the psalmist says, and puts us in families. In Jesus' name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.